listening to Not Small Things, a weekly-ish conversation about the overlooked or under-discussed, but actually really important things impacting women today. I'm Kristen James, or KJ. And I'm Dara Aubard. For our second episode, I wanted to talk about the not small things we have learned from spending so much of the last five years on Facebook. We've both watched The Social Dilemma and the problems with Facebook or Legion, but there's been a lot of good that came out of Facebook too, especially for us personally. We'll be joined later in the program by my good friend, Rachel Happy, co-founder of the Community Roundtable and a thought leader on online communities to chat about the good, bad, and ugly of Facebook. What has enhanced our lives, what has horrified us, what has made us laugh, what worries us the most, and what do we think our relationship with Facebook looks like going forward? To begin with, for those who don't know and didn't catch the first episode of Not Small Things, it's worth mentioning, KJ, that you and I actually met on Facebook. Yes, we met in a secret women's only political group that has really evolved into so much more than that for both of us. In our last episode, when we talked about the things that helped us survive the last four years, we didn't mention the current iteration of the group because between us, it's this hey, it goes without saying fact, that we are connected to a group of women that helped us survive. They're the non-toxic social media air that we breathe. And I know they've played a big part in helping me know how to stay engaged in issues and protests, understand the legal minutia of what we were facing and what we still face, helping me find my own voice and supporting using it. And I also don't know that I would have given Parks and Rec a second chance without their encouragement. Do we go into a sidebar on our Leslie Nope worship now, or should we keep that for a future episode? Leslie Nope, the original Joe Biden superfan. I think if we say much more about her, we'll never move on. And we have a guest. <laughs> Too true. Okay, so let's start at our beginning, which is with the phenomenon of groups, secret groups at that on Facebook. You know, I don't think I was ever in a Facebook group before 2016, except maybe a high school reunion group or like the local moms group, you know, where people say, I need a, I need a plumber. Where do I get a good plumber? Or, you know, selling old soccer gear or something. Basically, it was just a visual diary of my daily life before that. Mostly pictures of my kids looking adorable and saying funny things. Like when my then six-year-old daughter, who we weaned on Bowie from when she was a baby, was taking a bath and asked us if hot tramp was a nice thing to call someone, (laughs) stuff like that. And then the 2016 primary happened and all of a sudden my excitement over Hillary Clinton's candidacy seemed to make me persona non grata on my own feed. What was that all about? I had the same. And when I look back at my Facebook memories, I noticed that for a very long time, it was just questionnaires, the kind of social media adaptation of that old email bacon or crouton thing that used to circulate, uh, the food that I was cooking and random status updates like is playing Guitar Hero because for some reason I wanted my updates to be complete sentences with my name as the subject because I guess <laughs> I, I did that too. <laughs> English majors never, never graduate, I guess. I belonged to a few groups in the start. I had friends who were selling things and they would start groups. I belonged to a few high school groups because band nerd, show choir nerd, we never graduate either. But I didn't spend too much time in them. I didn't spend too much time on social media in general. And I definitely remember this moment, like you, realizing that the worst thing I could be in 2016 was somebody who was really excited about Hillary running. Just the act of supporting her. And by that, I mean, there was kind of quiet support in the beginning. It created this definite break with people, especially people whom I usually agree with. And one day I went from being a friend to being a neoliberal sellout. Oh my gosh, the same. I remember private messaging pro-Hillary articles to a friend of my mother's, one of the few women who seemed willing to post them proudly on Facebook. And after like the third or fourth time I did it, she said to me, you need to join this group. And that's where you and I met. At that time, there were a few hundred women in the group. 
but eventually it grew to number in the thousands, many thousands. And other groups sprung out of it that grew to number in the millions. But that original group got me through the 2016 election. In hindsight, the importance of that first group was it was a space for collective validation that what we were seeing in the media was driven by misogyny. And what we were experiencing outside the group on social media was also driven by misogyny. So if you're one woman commenting on a random post or article defending Hillary Clinton and a man barrels in and says, I hope you get raped as a response, you might think, okay, that's just one disgusting lunatic, right? But when you're in a group now where other women are experiencing the same thing daily, now you know we actually have a problem, even on the left with sexism and violence. And there were times I felt stalked. A man would come back in the comments and they knew where I lived, where I worked, who my clients were. They would have all of this quote unquote evidence against me about the type of person they thought I was. And I'm not the only one. And this was all because I had pretty practical questions about implementing Medicare for all. I, I would just become this target. So Facebook went from being very casual and fun to suddenly a mirror being held up. It revealed how deep the problems are because we weren't talking about this on a grand scale before. And it also gave us this safe space we wouldn't have had otherwise. And just being quiet felt like letting the misogyny win. So I know I really needed the courage of the collective to use my voice. And in fact, I recently had a conversation with my mother about this very thing. And I told her the point for me is never to quote unquote, win this argument. It's to let toxic white men know they aren't the final word. And that's something that has not just been a social media phenomenon for me. It's now actually helped carry into my real life. Right. I mean, it was, it was comforting on the personal level, the micro level to be in this group, but in a way also horrifying on the macro level, because when all these women are telling you that this is happening to them, you really are forced to acknowledge that this stuff, this misogyny still exists in a big way. Because I think a lot of us have gotten to a point where we don't necessarily see it in our face every single day. And yet it's clearly still there. And like you said, even on the left. And by the way, this is, of course, not to say that you can't have valid criticisms of Hillary Clinton without being a misogynist. I mean, obviously, that is not true. And we're not about blind Clinton worship by any stretch. We reserve that for people like Leslie Nope, who are fictional. <laughs> but even being remotely open to her as a candidate definitely brought out a lot of ugliness. And it felt good to find that Facebook group, that safe space. But then after Trump won, I felt like, I don't know about you, but I needed a more intimate space to grieve. I mean, there were thousands of women in that group by then, many of whom I did not know personally or hadn't really interacted with even online in a material way. And while I suspected but couldn't really be sure that other women felt as nauseated and fearful as I did. Most of the people I knew in real life didn't seem as bothered, though now I'm fairly certain that many of them were just holding it together better than I was. So I started to feel a little ashamed of my feelings. Like maybe there's something wrong with me that I'm having this reaction. And I retreated from the larger group, from social media in general, which by the way, was probably not the right move in the moment because had I not retreated, I would have learned quickly that I was not alone. But, you know, again, I just, I needed to, I needed to just huddle, do the hog thing. What is it? Haji? I needed to do the Haji thing um, and just retreat. But eventually our mutual friend, Laura, who we love, noticed my absence and invited me to a smaller group of about 50 women that had splintered off from the original one. And that smaller group has been going strong ever since, both online and in the real world. I think when you say Facebook group, it sounds so trivial. But this group is definitely not a small thing. We've been there for each other through breakups, illnesses, deaths, job losses, new ventures, kid challenges, We've partied and brunched and demonstrated and volunteered together. But as with any group, there have been some difficult dynamics too. Yes. I mean, connection to other women 
is not a small thing, especially pre-2016. We still lived in a world where we saw each other as competition and that metaphor of the pie. There's only so many spaces for us and we have to elbow each other out of the way. And the connection has been really important, but also without going into too much detail, because it's private, like you said, our closeness and familiarity as a group doesn't make us immune to what makes social media so hard, even when it can be positive and even nurturing. Disagreements happen because we're human. We don't always know what's going on in people's real lives when we, when we say things. Online communication can be challenging in general, I'm a writer. I tend to be extremely cautious with my words. And at times I've had to really go back and clean things up that I've said. I've needed to issue big, sincere apologies for hurting people. But for the most part, that group has felt like a lifeline to me. And yet, because the last four plus years were so intense, I'm actually right now on somewhat of a social media break. It was meant to be a complete break to work on a writing project, but then all of the things started happening and it was really hard to stay away. I have cut back significantly, but I'm really at a moment where I'm re-examining my future on social media. I'm very conflicted about Facebook. It feels like the platform to me that thrives the most on toxicity and misinformation. But when I think about leaving, it means giving up the easy access to this group that we're in. It's a very intimate space. It's an important space. One of the first places a lot of us go with our life wins and losses. And there's real profound love in there. And a definite not small thing for me, this group was one of the first places that I started to really talk about the lasting trauma from a sexual assault in my 20s. Those I hope you get raped comments, the feeling of being stalked, those deeply affected me. And writing my experience to you guys about what had happened, what I had experienced, that paved the way for me to be able to talk about it and deal with it with a therapist. Four years ago, I never would have been able to say this out loud on a podcast. And the group was really an important piece of of recovery for me. So like I said, I'm just, I'm not sure what's next for me. I mean, that's the million dollar question, right? I... In preparation for this episode, I went and watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix. You had already seen it, but I hadn't yet. So I watched it and I freaked out. (laughs) Freaked out. I'm watching this and thinking, damn, I just started Twitter and Instagram accounts for this podcast. And now I think I should shut it all down. And we'll just send word about new episodes to an email list or via carrier pigeon or something. Yeah, when I brought up social media... In the back of my head, I was like, oh, we're going to be a part of the problem. Yeah, totally. I mean, it felt weird. I mean, I'm sure all these people followed our Instagram account. And I'm like, here's some oranges. (laughs) (laughs) I just, you know, I'm so conflicted about it. Um, But it's obviously not realistic, especially in the beginning, to get the word out about this or really anything via email. I get flooded with emails. I get thousands of emails every day. It is not the best way to reach me with anything that I'm not expecting. And of course, I don't have a fleet of pigeons. So if I leave Facebook, not only do I lose easy access to my network and especially to our group of women, but I lose a decade of what essentially amounts to a scrapbook of my life. Those kid pics and adorable quotes, what I cooked, the theater I saw, my reactions to what was going on in the world at the time, that's a real loss. Like there are times, you know, especially since my mom died that I will just, I will just scroll through old Facebook posts just to like reconnect to a piece of me that existed in the same temporal time and space as my mom existed, you know, and certainly the memories I have with her. So that's a big deal. And I don't know where we go from here. Like, I don't know how we escape the matrix and model good social media habits for the next generation without losing our memories and the vital and, as we talked about, really vital, capital V, personal connections we have forged these past few years via Facebook. So I don't know the answer to this, 
but I know someone who might. We are extremely excited to have as our very first guest on the Not Small Things podcast, my friend, Rachel Hoppy, the co-founder of the Community Roundtable and one of the leading voices in the world of community management. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thank you, Dara. It's great to be here. Okay, so KJ and I just had a long conversation about Facebook groups. And as you know, we met in a Facebook group. Yeah. And there are so many pluses and minuses to that, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, I want to ask you a broad question that I know through the magic of friendship and podcasting, you actually know the answer to. What makes a strong online community? Oh, gosh, um, it's complicated, actually. It's not as and that's actually part of the problem is it's more complicated than people think. It's a bunch of factors. It's an environment, not one thing. So um, one of the things that I think is really important is intent and purpose. And, and that clearly articulated, like, why are we here? What are we doing together? Um, and I often say, you know, I, I had to learn this the hard way. Shared purpose actually isn't quite enough even to get a really strong community. There has to be shared value, meaning something you're doing together that has value, right? What can you do together that you couldn't individually or separately? Um, and, and, and something that matters, right? Like something that matters to all the participants. And that could be a very light something that matters, meaning we all love 80s music, cooking, whatever, or it could be something very significant, like we're building something new or we're uh, affecting politics or we're uh, collaborating to build services or whatever that is. Um, so I think that's really critical. And I think actually a lot of Facebook groups in particular start without much of a stated intent, meaning it's a bunch of friends, they get together, they start chatting. Um, and that's fine when it's really small and everybody kind of knows each other, um, but it, it gets dangerous as you grow because people don't know exactly why they're there. The other thing that uh, people really struggle with in communities because good communities are internally inclusive is that good communities need boundaries, very clear boundaries, meaning who's in and who's out. And how do we interact with the rest of the world? Uh, in today's world, we don't want to jettison anybody, but you can't be all things to all people, meaning there's not a strong purpose if everyone's in. And so you get a lot of spillover, I guess, is the best, like just people start fractioning and going off in different directions. So they're not all bought into like why you're there. And so I think those are some of the big things. Uh, there's a lot of kind of tactical things that help that, but I think that's probably the bulk of it. That totally makes sense. And, you know, we've experienced that kind of spin-off group ourselves. You know, as humans, we're hardwired for attachment, right? We talked earlier amongst us about how it seems kind of trivial to think of a Facebook group as important. And yet it seemed pretty vital to us, uh, particularly over the past four plus years. So what do you know from your work about the connection and attachment that forms in these online mm -hmm. communities? So I think community relationships is an area that we don't give a lot of attention to either in the real world or online. And uh, I, I've actually seen a couple of articles come out since the pandemic started about loose ties or weak ties and how important those are in our real lives, right? Like the person, the barista who gives us coffee or the mailman or um, here in Andover, I see this guy in Yankees gear walk every morning. And when I'm not on my walk, I don't see him, right? So I have no idea who his name is, but I see him like every day, right? So all of those small interactions actually are really meaningful to ground us as individuals, right? And so, uh, and they're the pool of people that we bring in for tighter relationships. So online communities 
allow you to be together with people you objectively don't know, but you share an interest or a passion or objective. The other thing people give short shrift to a lot of the time is what I think of as social artifacts, which are memes or pictures or questions of the week or kind of stupid, objectively stupid little things. But it allows us to get comfortable with each other and figure out who's in the room and how they react to things. Yeah, it's it's a very it's a very human need. And um I think people don't realize how much social media can attend to that need. And particularly in the mm-hmm. absence of being able to do it in real life, I think it's often just assumed that one is lesser than the other. Yeah. And I like, I think a lot about we have a crisis of adolescent men in this country, which is not a surprise, but I think of these young men in rural areas who feel like they don't belong anywhere and they find connection through gaming communities online. And that's actually a great thing. right? Like, because otherwise they'd just be isolated. Rachel, it's interesting you bring this up because the flip side of that, yes, these communities bring us a sense of connection. They bring people into our realms we might not otherwise encounter. There is a a psychological crisis of loneliness uh, that, Mm -hmm. that plagues not just our country, but the world. But we're also starting to see people come together in these communities for shared purpose that isn't maybe so valuable to society. We just had a violent attempt at a coup, and it was organized over social media. It was egged on by social media influencers. It was grounded in lies that thrive on social media. And that's an addition to what you just talked about, the self-esteem of young girls and uh, young men is at risk. We're spending more time online sometimes than nurturing our real life connections. What is your feeling about this? How do we, how do we create some balance here? Um, my feeling about it is that we're in crisis in real life communities right? Like there are too many isolated people. Uh, We're also in a crisis of education. And then you've got the compounding uh, aspect of uh, the way we organize ourselves is very oligarchical or hierarchical. The way people are motivated in our society is very extrinsically focused. And that creates people who don't know who they are because they're constantly trying to get their meaning and reward from something outside of themselves. Um, And so I look at all of that and I'm like, that's a socio or not a socio necessarily, just an emotional crisis, larger culture that makes people vulnerable and susceptible to false information to being more motivated by their friends than what they want or feel or know. And and that's just problematic regardless, but social media is like kerosene on a flame, right? So it just rips through that uh, vulnerability so fast that you're, you're taking your weakest citizens and giving them a tsunami of negative things all at once. And they're the least prepared to deal with them. Um, And so they get towed under by all of that. And, you know, added to that, uh, we've got a technology market and environment that uh, thinks that everything can be solved by technology. Um, And we don't need human intervention and we don't need moderation and we don't need community management. And so you've got all of these platforms that are like, we're not responsible for any of this. Oh, sure, we make a negative antagonizing content much easier. And yes, people pay us to share that, but we're not responsible for what happens after. And so 
those two things are just absolute wildfire. So just to be clear, when we talk about the problems with Facebook, which we mentioned the social dilemma earlier in this uh, recording, problems that the social dilemma highlights, are those problems with the platforms themselves or the way that the folks at Facebook kind of animate the platforms, use them, and the way that Facebook users themselves use them? Or is it both? It's a little bit of both, but it's mostly technology. And it's driven not just by uh, the technical infrastructure, but it's driven by the business model. And so they decided early on that advertising was going to be their model. Well, advertising doesn't care what you do after you see the ad, right? Like they just want to get in front of you. Things that work for advertising all trigger anxiety. So you're you're kind of flooded when you're online constantly by anxiety. And if you're a little unmoored or untethered from your own self-motivation to begin with, you're kind of getting whiplash all the time by whatever is coming in front of you on the algorithmic side. And if you don't know technology, you don't know how to limit that or how to avoid that or how to navigate that so that it's it's not so prevalent because of all of these cultural problems that we've got uh, and lack of education and understanding of technology. And you've got advertisers who are willing to shoot those ducks, right? On a massive, massive scale. And that's where disinformation comes in. It's much more effective to trigger somebody's anxiety than to trigger their positive motivations. It's, I, I really am fascinated by this metaphor that you just laid out there of the sitting ducks and, and advertisers taking aim at them because now I'm envisioning all of social media as a giant carnival mm. and each platform with its own carnival booth and the worst actors among us, including he who shall no longer be named <laughs> as carnival barkers, really. Yeah. Now I don't Absolutely. think I'll be able to get that out of my head. <laughs> so I like to say a lot of times, like the structure of the stream in social media is really antisocial. Because in the real world, if you have a carnival barker, most people like walk on by and he's kind of part of the background. Now in these platforms, if you start following that carnival barker, cause he says something amusing once, now you're locked in to being in his audience. And so you've got a rigidity to, I usually call it uh, standing on a soapbox in the town park, right? The crazy guy like on the soapbox, but that's not, that's not normal. Like, it's not normal that we crowd around that person. It's normal that we pass them and go home. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of locks in that dynamic in a way you can't get away from it or, or you have to intentionally get away from it, which intentionality is really lacking in a lot of people's behavior around social media because they just don't realize the risks or the, the damage to themselves. Well, well, the tech does allow us to deselect out of content and relationships we don't agree with or that challenge our beliefs and the beliefs that, let's be frank, often stem from following certain carnival barkers. And in some ways that being able to deselect can be helpful. It keeps some of us from seeing more toxic things that uh, maybe are problematic, but it also creates the question, are we cutting ourselves off too much? You know, I'm listening to this and wondering, as I'm thinking, maybe I'm stepping off of Facebook. Does that mean I'm opting out of communicating outside of my own bubble, communicating communicating with people who might get stuck in their own bubble. How can we be better digital citizens at this moment in time? 
Yeah, I mean, I, and again, that comes back to the intentionality, right? So I think that you and I, but I'm not sure, especially younger people, do you know you should opt out of ads, block people? You know, there's a certain soap opera quality of some of that stuff that's just entertaining. And so some people are pulled in through the entertainment and then kind of switched off. For me, I know how algorithms work. Uh, I, I blocked the last president. I blocked the name, so it never came up in my stream on Twitter. I block ads from certain sources all the time. I go into my privacy, I clear out terms so that Facebook doesn't know who I am. <laughs> I, I clean up my stream so I'm not seeing like Candy Crush updates or any of that stuff, but it takes a lot of work actually to do that. Um, at the same time, you also have to understand this metacognition, which is, I don't know what I don't know. You've got to have some awareness that there's a world outside of yourself that you're not tapped into. And that's a, actually a pretty high order educational or intellectual um, development, that metacognition. Um, so for me, uh, again, I like Twitter generally better than Facebook, but I have curated lists of black voices, native voices. I follow black family on Instagram because I know the visuals that I, my brain has seen year in, year out need to shift. And so it's a lot of that ambient, just seeing things in my stream that I'm not necessarily all that engaged with, meaning I may not share it. I may not respond to it. It's not my place to in a lot of situations, but I'm, I'm listening to the reaction of different populations so that I can kind of understand how things are perceived. I think we like to think we're very individualistic and very self-determined in our behavior. And what I've found is if the infrastructure makes something easy, that's the behavior that's going to happen more often than not. Uh, and the example I always give to people is you drive on the roads, right? I don't drive straight to Burlington because I'd have to get rid of lots of houses and trees. At, like I drive on the road because it's easier. It's not the straightest route, but it's easier, right? And so digital infrastructure is just the same. And you really have to evaluate what are we making easy and what are we making hard? And really mitigate the risk. Like what are the behaviors that are not helpful or constructive? I don't know if that answered your question. It's a complicated question. There's a lot of things that are combining to drive that behavior. And I think the platforms could help quite significantly, but they like what's been disappointing to me is the platforms don't understand the politics and sociology of what they're doing. Um, and they're very naive about it. Um, and the, the, because they're naive, that's where you introduce risks, right? Because the people with money and power kind of take advantage of those gaps in thinking. Yes, it's interesting you talk about the naiveness or maybe the unintended consequences. In my non not small things life, I'm a brand strategist. And I spend a lot of time carving out brand values and behaviors and voice. And this made me realize in the same way I can decide a brand that I'm working on is going to be inclusive and show more people than what is typically shown in an advertisement. I can also set parameters around how we behave in, in advertising mm -hmm. on, on social platforms. The minute you said, Hey, this often is a, is a inflection point of anxiety. You know, that's a guardrail a, a brand can put into place. Mm -hmm. That's a way that a company can take ownership of what they're contributing, but you're right. Facebook seems and the other companies seem more or less unwilling to really grapple with how deep 
some of the impact has, has gone in your mind. How do we get objectively to a point where the good is outweighing the damaging can Facebook or other online communities be a pure force for good in the world where we're finding connection, we're elevating values that are important to the sustainability of, of humans, the planets, our communities in real life, not just online communities. Is there an intervention here? Can we start to turn the tide? I mean, I, I wouldn't be doing what I do if I didn't think that. Um, uh, the, the flip side of that anxiety, though, it, and that extrinsic trigger is uh, you have to really intrinsically engage somebody. And intrinsic motivations take a long time to capture and solidify, right? So, um, the, and this is essentially the problem. The positive is a slow build and the negative is immediate. <laughs> and so uh, a lot of our business models really like the immediate, right? Like if you're a brand and you have an advertisement, you want immediate response to that. Um, and so if, if you want immediate response, you've got to engage the negative and the extrinsic. So for me, uh, and a lot of the work I do is on the financial and business model side, is helping people see uh, how positive interaction is compounding, but slow to build. Um, so the example of that is you start a small community uh, doing something really positive and people will come in and norm to that and engage in that. Um, but it takes a while, you have to invest. And so part of the work that I do is help helping people see that investment cycle. And I think it's kind of problematic, systemically problematic because we, we really like the quick fix for everything. And we're on quarter, like our organizations on our, are on quarterly uh, cycles with Wall Street. And so, you know, they've been pushed to, to really show progress at a quarterly level. And behavior change is slow, right? So behavior change doesn't happen overnight. So if we're trying to build a more sustainable planet, getting people to give up their cars, their gas-powered cars, is going to take a long time. Um, but once you do that, the network effects really can have really compounding value, right? So I'm always looking at that inflection point that's a negative or a positive feedback loop, right? And right now we see so many negative feedback loops. And part of the challenge of getting off of Facebook is the network effect, right? All my friends are on Facebook. So how can I as an individual get off of Facebook? You have to actually treat it community by community and say this whole community is getting off of Facebook. And then I can go, right? So it's how can we nudge the network effect in the positive direction? And it's a perfect metaphor for your podcast because uh, a lot of what we do in constructive communities is um, nudge micro behavior changes so that people barely feel it, but it puts them on the path. It's, it's, a very small thing that over time, if you iterate and compound, it grows and grows and grows, right? So, um, but you have to have that uh, visibility from the strategic down to the really small behavior change, right? If we can just get people to stop liking something and commenting on it instead, we get a much better conversation around it than just liking and sharing it. Right. So um, and, and Facebook, actually, I don't know that I'd give them credit for this, but they're kind of demoting some of that reaction stuff and trying to, to um, spur more commenting because it's more constructive. We've all experienced that, in, you know, in, in, in different and, and subtle ways. Um, and then, of course, all of that happened 
before this past year. This past year has been just a watershed of social media, online communities, and I think really learning about their impact and maybe how to use them. So from your perspective, how has this pandemic, how has this past year kind of capped all of what we've discussed? How has it changed the way online communities operate or how we think about them? And what does a post-pandemic future of communities look like? On the personal side, it's certainly been a lifeline, right? Like the communities that I'm in that are what I would say healthy, they're much more active over the past year because people aren't going out to bars with their friends to catch up or meeting for coffee or whatever. Like it's, it's what we have available. The thing that it does on the positive side is it gives everyone a voice and it gives them access to leadership. And so it changes the balance of power between institutions and individuals. And individuals can take this technology and really gain a lot of traction and collective um, engagement around the topic. So Greta Thunberg, right? Like, what would she be without social media? Like any tool, it it has its uses, and it also, uh, if you have this tool, you can't fix everything, right? Like, it's a tool. It's not good or bad on its own. How we use it really makes it good or bad. And uh, certainly you can improve the tool so that uh, you mitigate some of the risks. You can put the guard over the saw, for example, so people don't saw their fingers off, right? And I think that's what we need. That's the work we need to do. And do you feel like there's a renewed commitment to doing that work, given how much people have used social media in the past year, even more so how, how vital it's become to our everyday life. So I'll, I'll give an example. Reddit is a huge community platform. And they had a blow up a few years ago where their moderators basically went on strike. Now, these were all volunteer moderators. And a lot of them shut their subreddits down and just went on strike. Um, and it kind of crippled the company and I was looking at it and I was like, you never should have had a business model dependent on volunteers in the first place, <laughs> right? They had one community manager at Reddit a few years ago, which is like mind blowing. Well, now they've invested in a big community team, right? So uh, you see that a little bit at Facebook too. If you don't community manage on the front end, you end up having to moderate a lot in the back. So if you're not proactive, you have to be really reactive. And so I think that understanding is getting more awareness. I certainly think the average user is more exposed to the risk right now or more aware of the risks. Um, I would say even like the day after the inauguration or the uh, actually the day Twitter sh shut the, the ex-presidents Twitter feed down, all of a sudden everything was like less anxious, right? Like it lowered the temperature across the board because it took out this really, really loud bad actor. That was a great day. <laughs> I definitely felt like my anxiety dipped that day. No one was retweeting it. It didn't, it didn't have that, it wasn't given any oxygen. And so I think we are learning that like that that has an impact, like that moderation has an impact and needs to be done. I literally, even though in some moments I wonder like, what is he doing in Florida? Like, how is he feeling? What's going on? I still have that, that moment where I'm curious, but I notice because he's not on Twitter, I wake up. Yeah. And the first thing I don't think is, oh my God, how is he feeling? What is he tweeting? Was there a nuclear war while I was sleeping? <laughs> it's crazy. It's it, like the scale of that anxiety and the impact of that anxiety was enormous. Um, 
I don't care. And it's nice to not have to care. And actually, um, one of the points that I was thinking of that I didn't make before is good communities have a very, very, very different emotional tone than bad social media. When you come into a community, there is no prompt in your face to do something right now. It's a safe space, right? It's not a space where you get attacked. And and the people who run communities get very anxious, especially in the early days that engagement is going to pick up because they're like, oh my God, I've got to, I've got to push that engagement. But if that shared purpose is meaningful, that engagement and that scale will come and you scale that healthy environment where it feels calm and supportive, maybe challenging, but not anxiety provoking. And so I think that's the opportunity too, is really um, being intentional about the emotional environment we want to create, which is not something anybody in Silicon Valley thinks of at all. Well, I hope they start. Rachel, thank you so, so much for this conversation. I definitely learned a lot. And I think that I have a lot of hope that coming out of this year, people will take what you do a lot more seriously. And it sounds like companies already are reaching out to you to help uh, utilize your community management know-how and just the whole concept of community management to make social media a better place for everyone. Yeah. And I, like I've said for years, and this, this has changed too, is I have said for years that community management is the future of all management because all communications will be digital and networked. And so it's, it's a leadership skill. Everybody's going to need to have. It's not, it's not a role. It's a skill set. Um, so I, I, I see that changing because when I, first started saying that six or seven years ago, people would look at me cross-eyed and be like, I don't know, that doesn't have anything to do with like me managing. Um, and now they're like, yeah, yeah, I can see that. And so, you know, it's, it's been a long time coming, but I think I, in some ways the kerfuffle that we've had for the last four years has helped people see, you know, you can't change what you can't see. And it's surfaced all of these issues that desperately need to be addressed. So that's my optimistic side, looking at all the crapola that has been going on. Well, I would say optimism is not a small thing. That's a very, very important thing. So thank you so, so much for joining us. And hopefully we'll have you back on again some other time. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Kristen and Dara. It was great to chat. Oh my God, that was so illuminating. Isn't she great? She's great. And you know, in preparing for this conversation, I got to a point where I definitely needed a dose of optimism because I started to feel just very depressed about online behaviors. And I started to think a lot about this 2007 TED Talk given by psychologist Steven Pinker about the surprising decline in worldwide violence. His point was that we think we're living in extraordinarily violent times because we can access news and images of violent events more readily. And Rachel just hit on that. It's really easy to react to the negative. But his point was also that the decline in violence is in part because of our increasing access to human stories and our ability to project ourselves into them her idea of you can't change what you can't see. Pinker in later years talks about this as an expanding circle of sympathy. We're more reluctant to cause harm to people we can relate to, whether that happens through journalism, nonfiction, fiction, art, or yeah, even that little story that goes viral. For all its problems, Facebook does democratize, connect, and amplifies those kinds of stories. That's not a small thing. On the other side, like we just talked about, there is increased anxiety that comes along with all of that. It's difficult to want to be on a platform that is just as readily used to dehumanize and destroy as it is for the purpose of accelerating the good. And yeah, even sharing the sillier things, we need to lighten up our days. So 
So I guess this really is the social dilemma, right? I mean, there's a real human need to connect and find safe spaces in which to be brutally honest about your feelings, your hopes, and your fears. Social media and Facebook in particular does provide that. And until there's a viable alternative, and it would probably have to be another technology platform, right? Unless you're willing to limit your connections to those who live close to you, or you have an inordinate amount of time to spend on the phone. Until there's a viable alternative, each of us will have to decide if all the stuff that comes along with being on Facebook, the potential for polarization and increased anxiety, the disinformation, the data mining, is worth it for what it provides. But it sounds like there is a way out, perhaps through the same legislation that regulates other media companies, community management imposed by law, for instance, on the Facebooks of the world, paging Elizabeth Warren, hello. Or as Rachel described, we have to educate ourselves about the algorithm and get better at circumventing it, i.e. beating Facebook at its own game and forcing it to provide the good without the bad. I definitely think Tim Cook agrees with me, judging from his latest salvo against Facebook. Maybe he can give us a call. He should give us a call regardless. Yeah. Tim Cook, (laughs) give us a call and not small things. (laughs) Well, that's it for us. Thank you, first of all, to everyone who listened to episode one and took the time to give us great feedback. We really appreciate the support. And we thank you for joining us again for our second episode of Not Small Things. You can check us out at www.notsmallthings.com and follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Not Small Things. We'll talk again soon. Thank you.